You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. The past several months have been all abuzz with excitement about cryptocurrencies and the blockchain. The price of Bitcoin took a rocket ride toward the stars, but seems to have settled down for now. And stories were coming fast and furious about how the blockchain was going to transform and revolutionize... everything. I'm not too proud to admit that my understanding of cryptocurrencies and blockchain technology is incomplete at best. I've got a general understanding of what's going on and how it all works, but I can't help shaking this feeling that there are details I'm still fuzzy on. And I'm guessing I'm not alone there. Lucky for us, our CyberWire partners at the University of Maryland know a thing or two about this stuff and are willing to take the time to help us understand. Jonathan Katz is a professor of computer science at the University of Maryland and director of the Maryland Cybersecurity Center. As we'll hear in this CyberWire special edition, he's been following blockchain technology and cryptocurrency from its humble beginnings, and he's our guide to understanding how it all works. Stay with us. So Bitcoin actually was introduced in a white paper uh, that was written by this uh, pseudonymous person uh, who went by the name of Satoshi Nakamoto. And uh, interestingly enough, actually, it was um, a white paper sent to a uh, cyberpunk or a crypto mailing list that I was on. So I have actually an archived copy of the original email from from the person calling themselves Nakamoto uh, with a link to their white paper saying, hey, here's this great idea. Let me uh, let me tell you all about it. And it's actually funny because because I can look back now at the archive again and see the responses uh, of people to this white paper. And, you know, people found it very interesting and and, and suggestive and uh, imaginative, but they were skeptical that it would ever take off. So uh, <laughs> you can see that even as early as 2008, people were, were, were A, speculating about the demise of Bitcoin and B, being proven wrong. <laughs> um, <laughs> but but, I, but I, it wasn't actually until a couple of years after that, that uh, I think, you know, more than a handful of people were using it. And it wasn't until um, even a few years after that, that it kind of really hit the mainstream. And, you know, I, I'm trying to think back myself, uh, kind of when I first became conscious or really aware um, of Bitcoin, and that was probably uh, in about 2012, 2013. And that's when you really started to hear about people uh, who actually own Bitcoin. You, you, you would hear about people who were enthusiasts who were mining Bitcoin. Uh, and then a little bit after that, it started to hit the popular press. So was the, the uh, this white paper, was it simultaneously describing blockchain and Bitcoin sort of hand in hand? Yeah, actually it was. And I'm glad you, you brought that point forward because I think one of the things that's important to understand is that the original white paper really had uh, two independent contributions, I would say. Uh, one of them was this uh, idea of a blockchain uh, and a particular way to implement the blockchain that uh, is, is sometimes called Nakamoto Consensus. 
And then what you can do on top of the blockchain and, and suggesting or proposing the idea of a cryptocurrency on top of that blockchain, uh, which is Bitcoin. So there were really two independent ideas there. Uh, and as you know, uh, you know, the idea of cryptocurrency has taken on a life of its own, but the idea of blockchain uh, has also taken on a life of its own. And there are many different applications you can imagine on top of a blockchain besides only cryptocurrency. So the software behind running this, uh, for, for, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think of the, tran the uh, transition from a white paper to an actual system that's up and running. What was that process like? Yeah, so this is interesting because the network uh, of, of Bitcoin miners had to really bootstrap itself. Uh, when the white paper came out, uh, there was only one miner, essentially, which was Nakamoto himself. Uh, and then I think it spread to a small circle of his friends, uh, you know, under 10 people at the time who, who were doing Bitcoin mining. And then just, you know, friend to friend and word of mouth and, uh, you know, post to these mailing lists like, like the one I talked about, slowly got more people to join. Um, and then it just snowballed. And, but it's really interesting to think about the time when there were only, you know, 10 or 20 or 30 miners uh, in the Bitcoin network. And number one, you know, the fact that you could have mined Bitcoin relatively easily, a lot, uh, it would have been a lot more likely for you as a miner to get Bitcoin than it is nowadays when it's essentially impossible for a private person uh, without investing a lot of money in hardware uh, to mine any Bitcoin. But also the utility is obviously much lower because if only 30 people in the world uh, are using Bitcoin, then those are the only 30 people you can spend your Bitcoins with. And so take us through that. I mean, at some point, people start exchanging real money for Bitcoin. Yeah, so I think in the, originally it was just for fun. I think friends would, would exchange uh, Bitcoin among themselves. Uh, there's an early uh, example. I don't, I don't remember from what year this is now, but there's an early example of people just using it for fun to buy pizza uh, at, at what would now in retrospect be an exorbitantly high price, given how much, <laughs> uh, how much the price of Bitcoin has increased over that decade. Um, but, you know, like, like I said, people were using it for fun. And then, and then it wasn't until I, I'd have, you know, I don't remember exactly, but maybe around 2014, when the first, uh, you know, significantly large companies began accepting Bitcoin for payment over the internet, but until then, really, it was just this thing uh, for fun that um, people were hoping, maybe speculating, that it would take off, but really had no utility uh, at that point except for spending money among your friends. But then, once uh, companies began to adopt it, and once exchanges grew up around it, uh, then it became possible to translate Bitcoin into um, into uh, you know, I was going to say real currency, but now, who knows what real currency is these days? But yeah. anyway, you, you could you could exchange it for U.S. dollars at any rate. So let's dig in some and uh, explain how the blockchain works. You know, if you were sitting around your uh, you know your Thanksgiving Day uh, table and uh, a family <laughs> member who's who's not a computer scientist said, uh, "So Jonathan, uh, I'm hearing a lot about this blockchain thing. How would you ex how would you explain it to them?" <laughs> so first of all, I want to make clear that that uh, the ideas or or the problem that blockchain is solving. Uh, are not new, and they go back actually to the 1970s. And let me g just give a little bit of context. So hmm. uh, there's this classical problem uh, called consensus. And at a high level, the basic uh, issue is that you have a network of computers, uh, say three, five, ten computers. Uh, they're all maintaining copies of some data, and new data is constantly coming in, uh, maybe to one of those computers or maybe to all those computers, but they want to make sure that even as new data is getting added to the system, they all maintain a consistent copy. So you can imagine just as an example, right, you're, uh, a bank uh, has data on all the money in all their accounts, and if they, they wouldn't store it on just one computer because if, then if that computer dies or, or gets uh, broken or stolen, all that data is lost. So they're going to replicate that data among you know three machines, let's say, but they want to make sure that at all points in time, all those machines have a consistent 
uh, state a consistent view of all the money in everyone's account. Mm. So that's the question that people considered beginning really with Leslie Lamport in the late 1970s um, and showing some feasibility results, uh, some impossibility results, actually, uh, but quite interesting. And uh, the research had kind of come to a natural stopping point uh, around you know the late 1990s, I would say, uh, maybe early 2000s. There, there was some further improvements giving practical uh, consensus protocols. And the real revolution with uh, blockchain is, is that it's a mechanism for achieving consensus. And the big difference between blockchain and prior work is that um, prior work had always assumed that you had a network of computers that were being provisioned by some entity. So, you know, to go back to the bank example, you had these three computers and they were all being managed by a bank, meaning that the bank could tell them exactly, you know, what software they should run. Uh, the bank could uh, monitor them. And, and if any of them were behaving incorrectly, it could reboot them. Uh, and it was a closed system so that the computers all knew they were talking only to each other and they wouldn't accept any connections from the outside. Hmm. And the big difference with, uh, with blockchain, the big conceptual leap, was that he designed it to be an open system, uh, what's now called a permissionless blockchain, uh, meaning that anybody could join, anyone around the world could join. And classical consensus protocols completely fell in this case because the, what, it, what would happen is that they would get overwhelmed by attackers, right? So if I have my network of three computers but then I allow 100 random people to join. Hmm. Uh, well, then if an attacker wants to attack my network, he'll just you know, spin up 100 different machines and join my network and completely overwhelm me. Right. And so that was a problem that was really you know, believed to be inherent. And, and so for that reason, uh, all the classical work was in closed systems uh, where you know exactly who the parties are in advance. But uh, Nakamoto showed that by using these uh, proofs of work, you could limit the effect that any attacker could have. So in particular, you know, one of the problems that classical consensus protocols uh, face is that uh, even if you have only one attacker, they can spin up 100 virtual machines or 100 real machines and join your network as 100 different individuals. And uh, Nakamoto's insight, uh, based on some prior work, was that if you require people essentially to do these uh, proofs of work, then uh, an attacker who only had, let's say, one physical machine could still try to spin up 100 virtual machines uh, on their physical machine, but the amount of work that they would be able to do is not going to be increasing. Uh, and so even though they have 100 virtual machines, the amount of work per virtual machine is now 1 100th of the, of the amount of work that the physical computer can do. And this was a way essentially to rate limit uh, the number of um, uh, malicious parties that could, that could join the network at any time. And what Nakamoto did was to design this protocol that would be uh, resilient as long as uh, more than as long as a majority of the computational power in the network were controlled by honest people, and so has that held up? Well, yeah, it, it, you know, to a large extent, it has. Uh, there's some debate about what the exact threshold is, uh, whether or not it can tolerate uh, any minority of attackers uh, controlling controlling a min minority of computational power, or whether you actually need the honest parties to control something like two thirds or some other fraction of the computational power in the network. It depends a little bit about what assumptions you're making uh, and various other things. But, but yeah, basically it looks like it has worked. And um, there have been since that time um, some formal analyses of the blockchain of the Nakamoto consensus protocol uh, showing, in fact, that, that it is secure against uh, some fraction of adversarial behavior. And so explain to me, I mean, is this truly open now? I mean, could, could, if I wanted to, could I, uh, you know, go get the, the software, which I understand is open source, yes, and, and just spin up my own computer and, and jump on in? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Anybody can join. 
And you can actually join uh, as, a, as a miner. You can try to mine Bitcoin on your own. Uh, or and or you can join as uh, just somebody who who owns Bitcoin and spends Bitcoin and follows what's going on in the Bitcoin network uh, without actually doing any uh, any of the mining. But yeah, definitely it's still open. Anybody can can join at any time. So let's uh, explain what the mining is. How does that work? So the mining was another ingenious aspect of uh, of Bitcoin. So this now you get into the cryptocurrency layer on top of blockchain. Mm-hmm. Um, and the basic idea was to incentivize people to maintain the consistency of the blockchain. So remember, the goal of the blockchain is to make sure that everybody in the system has a consistent view of, uh, of all the accounts, really, of who, owns, uh, of who uh, owns what coins and how many coins there are in the system. And as part of doing that, the nodes were required to uh, check various calculations done by other nodes. And uh, Nakamoto had the idea to incentivize people to do that by building into the sequence of checks and, and, and maintenance of the blockchain a process by which in the course of doing that, you would get some payoff in terms of Bitcoin that you mine. So, you know, basically at a, at a, at a, at a very uh, high level, the idea is you, you run this massive amount of work, uh, which I'm leaving unspecified now, but you do some massive amounts of work in the process of which you're ensuring consistency of the blockchain. And after you do some certain amount of work, you get paid off by creating some new Bitcoin that belong to you. But that amount of work has increased over time, yes? That's right. So another aspect of Bitcoin is that the rate at which uh, Bitcoin are created is held constant. And so as the amount of computational power in the network grows, meaning as the number of miners in the network grows, the computational effort needed to generate new Bitcoin increases. So uh, over time, as the, ne- as the network has expanded exponentially, the amount of time required to mine new Bitcoin has also increased exponentially. So we've heard stories about how this is, means that uh, Bitcoin is taking increasingly large amounts of electricity to mine uh, new coins. That's right. And I think people are worried about that, both in terms of how much longer it can continue to grow and also in terms of the environmental impact of all of this. Because essentially, uh, all the work that's being done to mine Bitcoin uh, has no external positive impact. Uh, it's only being used to, to A, ensure the consistency of the Bitcoin network, and B, to mine new Bitcoin. And uh, yeah, there are these reports now that the total amount of computational effort expended as part of the Bitcoin network is, is even exceeding that of certain countries. And so I don't know how, how much longer that can continue. Uh, it, it'll just be interesting to see. What I will say is that people are thinking about alternate mechanisms that might be used uh, besides these proofs of work that might uh, either involve other resources like storage, uh, or that might involve other mechanisms altogether that wouldn't require this wasted computational effort on behalf of the entire network. So Bitcoin is obviously the, the most well-known sort of textbook example of cryptocurrency, but there are many other types. Can you take us through what are some of the differences in, in what other uh, types of cryptocurrency have been spun up? Well, the first thing I would say is that you're exactly right, that there are, are literally uh, hundreds of other cryptocurrencies that have sprung up. And essentially, anybody, anybody at all can make their own cryptocurrency, and you can do it easily just by copying the Bitcoin protocol and giving it your own name or changing some parameters of the protocol uh, and then giving it your own name. Uh, but of course, those are not really very interesting. What's interesting are the uh, cryptocurrencies that differ in some uh, particular way from Bitcoin. And let me just mention two of them that I, that I think are particularly interesting and that expand the scope of Bitcoin in two different directions. Hmm. Uh, so one of those, another maybe uh, well-known one, is called Ethereum. Uh, Ethereum is, uh, uses a similar blockchain uh, substrate uh, as Bitcoin does, 
but then what it layers on top of that is something that's kind of goes beyond what Bitcoin offers. So Bitcoin can be viewed uh, at the highest level as a protocol that allows you to transfer value from one account to another, right? So I can send uh, half a Bitcoin from me to you. And that's basically the only operation it supports. Uh, Ethereum, on the other hand, is uh, allows you to implement a general purpose computer. So what that means essentially is that I can write uh, some arbitrary program and I can have it executing on the virtual computer that is Ethereum that's composed of all these different miners running the Ethereum protocol. And that gives rise to, to what people have heard of, these smart contracts, mm. uh, by which I mean that I can, I can write a program that embeds in it a contract that, for example, says, you know, if party A does, does something, then I will pay them a dollar uh, or, you know, one Ether. Uh, and if party B does something else, and if they do it first, maybe, then they get the Ether. Uh, and you can write these arbitrarily complex contracts that will then be executed uh, on the uh, on the Ethereum virtual uh, machine, and they're kind of they're called self-enforcing because the point is that they get executed no matter what, and once you place them in the virtual machine in the Ethereum virtual machine, they're going to get executed no matter what. So basically, if I put a contract, let, let's just take a simple example. I, I can put a contract in there that says, you know, if you send me uh, proof that uh, you know you delivered some goods to my house, then automatically one Ether will be transferred to you. So now this contract is sitting there on the Ethereum blockchain, and then at some later point in time, if you're able to send, you know, a digital contract uh, to to that contract, and then have it checked, of course, by the contract and by the people running the contract, then that ether will be automatically transferred from me to you, and you don't have to worry, say, that I will renege and and not uh, and not pay you out. Hmm. So that's one just you know fascinating example of how the uh, the richness of what's of what can be supported was extended significantly from the original Bitcoin idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, another direction is to think about cryptocurrencies, but think about uh, building privacy in. And uh, there are a number of notable examples here. Uh, two that come to mind uh, are Zcash and Monero. And basically, the the idea there is that Bitcoin is is uh, uh, even though we like to think of it as offering anonymity because uh, all the names of people are really just public keys, uh, it actually is fully transparent. It's a log where every transaction is recorded and publicly available for people to view. So uh, it actually does not offer uh, very good anonymity at all. And people have, uh, for the last couple of years, been thinking about how you could add anonymity to the system and enable transfers of money without revealing who's transferring money to whom and even potentially without revealing how much money is being transferred. And so uh, those newer systems uh, build anonymity in, again, again on top of the uh, Nakamoto Consensus Protocol, um, but allowing people to transfer money completely anonymously. So in terms of uh, of what's going on cryptographically under the hood, um, I, you know, I, I hear stories about uh, some of these um, you know, cryptocurrency exchanges being uh, cracked or people getting their, their, their money stolen. Uh, can you give us some background on that? So this is also very interesting. I mean, one thing that I think needs to be pointed out here is that for most of these, I, I think for most of these stories, and especially all the ones uh, related to Bitcoin, uh, these Bitcoin thefts that you're hearing about uh, are actually not... Uh, due to flaws uh, or vulnerabilities in the underlying uh, Bitcoin protocol itself, they're due just to standard uh, security vulnerabilities at large. So, just as an example, um, you know the way Bitcoin uh, it, the, the way Bitcoin transfers work is that you have a cryptographic key, uh, and ownership of a Bitcoin basically means that you know the associated key, and when you want to spend that Bitcoin, you use that key in a particular way to uh, to cause a transaction to occur, and it, you have to store that key somewhere. So you can store it on your laptop, but then if you have malware in your machine, 
uh, that malware can pick up a copy of that key and send it to an attacker. You can store it in the cloud, you can store it online, you can store it on one of these exchanges, for example. But then if those exchanges get hacked, the attacker gets access to all those keys, and that effectively gives it access to uh, to all the Bitcoin. It gives it the ability to spend all that Bitcoin. So really, again, it's, it has nothing to do with the underlying protocol. It just has to do with the fact that it's all digital now, uh, number one. Uh, and the fact that there's no uh, kind of way to reverse transactions the way that might happen if your bank were, were hacked into, right? The bank would have, you know, offline backups perhaps and be able to recover and have insurance to cover the event of that loss. But for the for, but for Bitcoin, that simply doesn't exist. And so if you lose your secret key, you lose your Bitcoin, there's no way to recover it. Uh, and, and that's it. And so really that's what's going on in all, the, in all these examples. And, and so we've seen examples of people, uh, a market popping up for hardware wallets. Yeah, that's right. So because of the need to store these keys securely uh, and because of the difficulty of doing that on just, you know, your, your regular uh, laptop, um, people have been selling these uh, Bitcoin wallets that claim to make it, uh, you know, more easier to securely store your Bitcoin keys. And uh, for a lot of users, that would actually make a lot of sense uh, because it, it does give them an easy way to manage their keys more securely than just storing them on their own local computer. Now, when some of these uh, attacks have happened, I've heard of uh, some of the uh, some of these networks is saying we're we're going to we're going to fork the uh, fork the network now. What does that mean, and what's the implications of that? So, at various points in time uh, in Bitcoin, but also in other cryptocurrencies, um, there's been some debate about the best way to uh, let's say run the network. Um, so, for Bitcoin, just as an example, there was some debate about whether or not to increase the maximum number of transactions that could be allowed. Uh, at any given uh, time. And there were some group of people who wanted to increase it and some group of people who didn't want to increase it. And ultimately, when they couldn't agree, uh, one of the groups or, or the group that wanted to change the protocol essentially said, okay, you know, we're going to go ahead and change the protocol. Everyone who wants to change the protocol, come along with us and, um, and, you know, and update your protocol accordingly. But people who didn't want to change are not going to change. And so what ends up happening is that you end up with, with two people uh, two groups of people, rather, who are both starting at the same point, right, the original Bitcoin network, but then forking off onto two paths where one of them is going to continue running the original Bitcoin protocol, and the other one is going to run a new version, an updated version of the Bitcoin protocol, and those are going to be incompatible with each other. So what that means is that, let, let's see, so let's say at time step zero, everyone's running the same protocol, and then at time step one, you have one group uh, choosing to remain with the protocol, one group choosing to deviate. They can both look back and uh, at any prior Bitcoins that were mined prior to time zero and still use those in their network. But any coins mined from time period one on are only going to be usable on that particular uh, on that particular side of the path that they took. Um, and so basically that's kind of bad from the point of view of the overall ecosystem because in, in the best case, right, it splits everybody in half. And now rather than having, you know, a thousand people mining on Bitcoin, you have 500 people mining on the left and 500 people mining on the right. Uh, and it's better, obviously, when you have more people, uh, you know, working on the same thing. But nevertheless, these forks have happened various times, and um, uh, they can lead to some, you know, short-term instability and also potentially long-term decline. So, so I just saw that um, uh, in the last couple of months, actually, one of the Bitcoin forks uh, basically died out, uh, lost interest over time, uh, and then decide, they, people decided just to uh, to kill it off and and switch to the other fork of Bitcoin. Yeah, it seems like a. Um uh, a symptom of, I guess, the decentralized nature of the whole thing, where you don't have a, a governing body who says, hey, we're, you know, we're coming out with a 1.1 release now. Uh, people are sort of more in control of it. Uh, I guess the, the group, all the users uh, have, have their say. 
It's very interesting to think about this point, actually, because on the one hand, you're right, it's completely decentralized. And if all the users uh, tomorrow decided, or, or if even a fraction of the users tomorrow decided they wanted to change the protocol, they could go off on their own and just you know form their own group running their own protocol. On the other hand, there is also a core group of Bitcoin developers, and they uh, have a lot of influence, right? If a lot of them spoke out and said, hey, we think this is a great idea, we all agree unanimously that we want to change things, then they might actually be able to change uh, parts of the protocol, but again, it would be up to the individual miners to agree and to actually update the software and and, uh, and accept that change. So are there, uh, f f for lack of a better term, are there full-time staffers working on these protocols? Well, I wouldn't say full-time. Uh, they'd have to get paid somehow, I suppose. But, yeah. but there are people who are definitely actively maintaining uh, or, or thinking about maintaining the network and, and who are actively thinking about what direction the network should should go in. Uh, so, yeah, definitely. But again, it's... it's um, it's also an open group, so it's not you know a cabal of people. Uh, it's an open group, but 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 you can't just uh, you know join instantaneously. You'd have to build up reputation. You'd have to get involved somehow at a low level before before rising through the ranks, as it were, uh, until you were accepted by the community at large. Where do you see this headed? Uh, obviously, we have a lot of enthusiasm. The the price of bitcoins you know, skyrocketed at the end of last year. It seems to have settled down some, but. Uh, you know, the, all all of this enthusiasm and speculation over what is essentially sort of an imaginary thing, a virtual thing at the very least. What's your outlook? Well, I can tell you my opinion. Obviously, it's all speculation. And, and uh, what I'll tell you is that I've, I've, I've kind of had this opinion for a while and I've been consistently proved wrong <laughs> the last five years. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> what, what, what I will say is that it seems to me, um, number one, you're, you're exactly right that, that to, to, a, to a large degree, um, the, the value of Bitcoin right now seems, number one, arbitrary, and number two, uh, a lot higher than what its actual value is. If you think about what its actual value should be, uh, clearly that, that should depend on how many people are using it, and more importantly, how many merchants are accepting it. And given you know how difficult it would be right now for the average person to uh, obtain Bitcoin and then spend it, um, I, I would say the, the actual adoption, the, the, the number of people using Bitcoin is, is much, much lower than the U.S. dollar. Um, the number of transactions, the, the the value of the transactions that are that are going on in Bitcoin right now, is uh, much lower than the total value of all Bitcoin out there, and so it seems to me that the price of Bitcoin is is overinflated. Uh, it's also not clear to me, you know, that Bitcoin will be the uh, the winning cryptocurrency. It does seem, you know, to me that the, that number one, the idea of Nakamoto consensus was a brilliant idea, and, and that I think will uh, last. I think the idea of cryptocurrencies is a solid idea. I think there are applications for it. Uh, there is a real need for it. I, I see this all the time whenever I change money, uh, when I travel internationally, and I'm hit with these fees uh, when I want to change money in both directions at the airport, coming mm -hmm. and going. And, and there's really no reason for that. And so cryptocurrencies can, can really feel a, fill a great role in uh, facilitating international transactions, just for one example. So I think there, there, there is a, a, a need that they can fill. But it's not clear to me that Bitcoin will be the, the winning cryptocurrency, right? We, we've seen several times throughout history that the initial technology, number one, is not the best, and number two is not always the winner. And so something may well come along that will displace Bitcoin, uh, at which point I, I would think that Bitcoin would essentially become worthless uh, or perhaps maybe you, you have very small value as a collector's item. Um, and, and that's my, my guess. My best guess for what will happen is that cryptocurrencies will be around 10 years from now. Uh, but the cryptocurrency of choice may not be Bitcoin itself. And what about the blockchain? I mean, we see lots of uh, people crowing that uh, there are going to be all sorts of uses for this. That you know, it's going to revolutionize uh, how we organize things and track things. 
What's your take on that? Absolutely. There's a tremendous amount of hype, and I think a lot of the hype is is unwarranted. I think that, uh, like I said, the problems of the problem of consensus has been studied uh, for 40 years, and uh, the problem of consensus has been solved also for much of those 40 years. So a lot of companies that are touting the fact that they have, let's say, a private blockchain. Uh, to me, a private blockchain is just a secure distributed database, which we've had, you know, for for decades. Hmm. So there's nothing new there, other than the term blockchain. Um, the fact that companies are aware of, of these new techniques, maybe for achieving uh, consensus, is, is good. But I don't see how uh, a lot of these private blockchains are going to really change anything. Now, on the other hand, the idea of the public blockchain, uh, where, where, as I said before, anybody can join, and uh, it's a completely open system, and it's also a transparent log that anybody can 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 read and access. Uh, that does seem to have some some good applications. I think we're still waiting to see what the killer app will be. But I can imagine that for public records, for example, uh, this would be very useful. You'd have a, um, uh, a consistent uh, public and append-only view of public documents, for example, uh, which would give anybody the ability to look, to look for public documents and search, search for documents uh, at any time, uh, which would give anybody the ability to add documents uh, uh, to this public view as they wanted, and which would prevent anybody from being able to modify things that were put there in the past. And I can imagine that that would be very useful. I'm not, I'm not sure if there's a money-making opportunity there, uh, though I'm sure I could be proved wrong, but, but it does seem like it would be very useful for society to have that. And I've seen, you know, I, I forget which country it was, but some country, I think it was... I think Estonia uh, is uh, working on that. Could it be Estonia? But they, they were talking about putting uh, real estate records uh, oh. records of real estate transactions in a blockchain. Maybe it was Switzerland. Uh-huh. Um, and, and in any event, I can imagine that would be very useful because that would provide a public database of real estate transactions um, that's would be that would be untamperable. All right. Well, I think I think we've covered a lot here. Is there any uh, area that I've missed? Anything you, you feel like uh, we should touch on that we haven't uh, hit on? I, I guess the only thing I would say is, is that it, it, it's it's great for me to see all the interest in blockchain and and cryptocurrencies. Um, I, I just you know w- w- unfortunately that comes with a lot of this hype and a lot of overpromotion. And there's a lot of companies jumping into the space. I, I think only very few of them r- really know what they're doing. Um, and I think there's going to be some shakeout in the uh, in the market at some point when only the, you know the few people who ha- actually have good ideas, have marketable ideas, and actually understand the underlying technology are going to remain. And the other people who kind of just jumped on the bandwagon are going to be, um, uh, I think, eventually pushed out of the market. But nevertheless, I think it, it, it is really exciting technology. There's a lot of cool cryptography involved, which I'm very happy to see. And um, I think it's great to have the public be more aware of of, uh, cryptography and and computer security in general. And as someone who does understand this stuff, do you have any advice for folks who don't understand this, for how to protect themselves, how to make sure that they don't get caught up in in one of the scams or, you know, uh, lose lose their money? Yeah, well, I think the first thing I would say is uh, that there's a lot of information available online. There's tons of blog posts. There's tons of videos. Uh, there's a book I can recommend uh, on Bitcoin. It's it's a little bit outdated because it came out several years ago, but it's still a pretty good uh, introduction to the uh, the underlying protocol. And if you're interested in it at all, you know at least read that, skim it, understand uh, at a high level what's going on, so you can uh, make better judgments about the field. And and you know you talk about people jumping in and getting caught by scams, and I think immediately of all these ICOs, where where to me it seems like these ICOs uh, have just jumped on the bandwagon and been able to convince people to put money in with no expectation of any return and and oftentimes with no underlying business model uh, e- even being present 
And I think those are very dangerous. And, and I would, you know, be loath even to lump those into the general world of blockchains and cryptocurrencies, even though they do fit in that space, because all they're doing is, is, is essentially using it in name only. It's like I talked about earlier, where anybody can spin up their own cryptocurrency, but it doesn't mean it's valuable. And so people, I think, have to be very careful about that and, and invest in ICOs only to the extent they would invest in any other publicly traded company. And I want to make the announcement that uh, at the end of this program, people will be able to buy the Katz Bittner cryptocurrency. Uh, it's going to be the hottest thing. Uh, That's right. So, uh, get, it, get, it, get in at $100 now, and it'll go up to $1,000 Yes, guaranteed. It's a sure thing. That's what could right. possibly right. go wrong? Yes. Yeah, yeah, so that, exactly. Between you, with our expertise, and by our expertise, I mean your expertise, what could possibly go wrong, right? That's right. That's right. <laughs> All right, Jonathan. Well, uh, I think we've got it covered. As always, uh, thanks for taking the time. Sure, this was really great. It was a lot of fun. And that's our CyberWire special edition, looking at the blockchain and cryptocurrencies. Many thanks to Jonathan Katz from the University of Maryland for joining us. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technology. The coordinating producer for this show was Jordan Kovacs. Our show is produced by Pratt Street Media with editor John Petrick, social media editor Jennifer Iben, technical editor Chris Russell, executive editor Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber.